Hello, and welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum for Thursday, September 10th, 2020. I'm Sam Aquilano, the founder and executive director of the museum, and I'm joined by our amazing vice president, Liz Pollack. Hi, Liz. Hi, Sam. On this week's episode, we're going to be talking about being black in design. Well, I'll just stop there because uh, Liz and I will mostly be listening. Uh, As two white hosts, we don't have a lot to share on that topic. But thankfully, we have two amazing black designers on the show today to talk about the black experience in design. Our guest co-host has been organizing virtual panel discussions on this topic. Zoe Middleton will be joining us. She's the Director of Design, Marketing, and Product Development at Fabrique. Then we'll all be joined by Kevin Bethune. He's the Founder and Chief Creative Officer at Dreams Design and Life. And he's also the Chair of the Board of Directors at the Design Management Institute. I'm really excited for this conversation and for their conversation. Again, Liz and I are creating this space and really learning from them. So I'm excited. Before we dive in, Liz, looks like we're just about a week away from Design Night Live. Yes, I know. So uh, yeah, one week away. uh, And I am so, so, so excited. Uh, As you know, we have Ramala Mohammed and Jessica Kender, who will be giving our keynote presentation. Ramala is a writer and co-executive producer on Little Fires Everywhere. And Jessica is the production designer. And uh, together, they will talk about their experience designing and storytelling uh, on the show and, you know, how I think that's changing uh, in the future. We also have incredible demonstrations demonstrations, uh, Chef Angela Michelle will be creating a Korean sushi roll laced with edible diamonds, diamonds. Uh, which is incredibly cool, I know. Uh, and Amy O'Neill, an expert mixologist, will be uh, showing us how to make a torched, not-so-old-fashioned cocktail with a smoked glass. Uh, we've got Spencer Nugent and Derek Cassio, who will be live sketching and, per usual, blowing us away uh, with what they can do in just seconds. We're going to have incredible prizes and silent auction items, and we're going to be celebrating the importance and impact of design. We already have hundreds of people signed up uh, from around the country and the world, and we just can't wait to celebrate with all of you. So we will be closing tickets soon. So if you haven't gotten yours yet, just go to designnightlive.org. The event is going to be on Saturday, September 19th at 8 p.m. Eastern. uh, So it's right around the corner. Oh, yeah. This is the moment of like the planning where I'm just getting just genuinely excited, right? Like I know. we put a lot of time and thought into planning these experiences and, you know, we're always focused on that, but now I'm like, this is happening. And I'm like yeah. legitimately psyched. It's just going to be a super fun night. <laughs> oh, can't wait. So good. In September, 2019, we launched a new exhibition at the design museum called We Design People Practice Progress. The exhibition brings together creatives from a wide range of backgrounds to examine and celebrate the range of careers and impact in design. It also emphasizes the need for more racial diversity in design. We had been traveling We Design to various venues around the country, and then of course, COVID-19 put that uh, put a halt on that. Uh, so we brought We Design onto our website, and we'll continue to add career stories and content as this is now our first permanent exhibition. So I really encourage everyone to check out the exhibition online. It features great stories from Black designers, including the late Phil Freelon, Liz Ogbu, Sabrina Dorsonville, um, who actually we just had on the podcast in the last episode. Uh, And there's many more. Uh, So to continue these authentic conversations and share the experience of Black designers, I'm excited to bring on this week's guest co-host. Zoe Middleton is the Director of Design, Marketing, and Product Development, and she's an account manager at Fabrique, an innovative soft goods and carry case company. 
It's likely if you've used a bag from Kensington, Logitech, HP, Belkin, or Dell that you've experienced Zoe's work. Zoe leads the design function from ideation to product launches, managing account pricing, cost analysis, product launches, and marketing. She just does it all. Um, so there you go. Uh, as I mentioned at the top, Zoe has recently produced a series of panel discussions featuring prominent black voices in design called Design Futures Black in Design. Zoe, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we're excited. We're excited. Thank you. Uh, I wonder if we could start uh, by having you tell us a bit of your career journey into design. Like, how did you discover design? Sure. So, um, well, my mother was an English teacher and she enrolled my siblings and I into an all arts high school. Um, and I fell in love with fine arts, really more so um, sculpture um, and knew I did not want to write 10 page papers on English <laughs> like that just wasn't going to work. Um, and my sisters were having a fantastic time in New York City. So I wanted to join in all the fun and discovered Pratt Institute and decided to attend the school there. Um, I had an excellent uh, education there, started off in fine arts and realized that it was a little too similar to high school. So I wanted to challenge myself a little bit more. Um, and that's where I uh, discovered industrial design. Still very hands on, but I love the problem solving. Um, a little thing about me is I love a good puzzle. I eat the one that's <laughs> behind me. Um, and that's where it all kind of came together. Um, and then from graduating from Pratt, I kind of started my career off actually in the watch industry. Oh, um, and I had, yeah, I had an opportunity to work with a small company based in New York called the Cleesey, working with fine silvers and um, gold and semi-precious stones. So it was a great way to tie in fashion with technical. Um, and then from there, I had the opportunity to go to Timex. And at the time, Timex was kind of reinventing themselves for their 150 year uh anniversary and they mm. no longer wanted to be known as their grandfather's watch. You know? <laughs> um, so at the time, the innovation was colored in the glow. Uh, so as a fashion designer, I had the opportunity to develop a line of fashionable women's watches and men's using the new technology of the color oh, nice. in the glow. Yeah. So that was pretty interesting. From there, I kind of pivoted because I wanted to try something different after being in the watch industry for a few years. Um, and I had the opportunity to move to Florida and work for Office Depot, uh, specifically with a design company based in Connecticut, but everybody had the opportunity to work in-house at Office Depot. So total design change from yeah. very fashion-oriented uh, <laughs> to more- supplies. Yeah. <laughs> Mass market and all of those things. So um, actually, that was a great experience. Again, learning the mass market, continuing learning about mass market products uh, globally, not just within the US, but also um, in Europe in China, um, and then working with the buyers and better understanding how they try to engage with customers, um, price point sensitivity, what they're looking for in terms of markups, and then um, dealing with branded product as well as OEM manufacturing. Mm. Um, so that's where I kind of got my toe wet, I, I can say, in the OEM <laughs> aspect of that. Um, and that was can quite interesting. Can you actually describe what OEM means? So OEM manufacturing is original equipment manufacturer. And so what that means is if you are a brand, but you don't necessarily have the um, capabilities of bringing your product to market, uh, that's where you would work with a person like myself because we have the uh, factories and or 
the way to produce your product at a lower price point and we're able to put your brand on that. So that's what OEM Yeah, so like someone like HP who doesn't necessarily um, develop and, and manufacture bags, but they want them in, in their product line would work with you. Um, Correct. Yeah, that's awesome. They don't necessarily need to have all of the connections with all the suppliers over, overseas. Right. They work with someone like us. Yeah, that's awesome. Sorry, I totally like jumped into your career path. So this <laughs> that then led into Fabrique, and maybe you could tell us about uh, your work there. Yeah, no. So with Fabrique, um, interesting opportunity. It's a woman-owned business, um, and she was actually the woman, uh, the president, Francine Farkasiers, was on the plane to open up China back in the seventies with Nixon. Oh, wow. So that was one of the drives to want to work with Fabrique, uh, to work with a woman with such experience and knowledge. Um, and while there, I had the opportunity to really work with brands as HP. I opened up the Belkin business, um, Dell, Acer, to m name a few, as well as Logitech. It's interesting enough because I still see product that I designed 10 years ago out in the market. <laughs> and I'm like, I love that this has been out in the market now for seven to eight years. Um, but it was really exciting. I mean, you don't win all of the businesses. A lot of the projects are RFQ based, so requests for quotes. So they'll provide us with a tech pack of what they're looking for. And then they bid that out to other OEM manufacturing companies. And that is selected based off of price, quality, and overall design. Um, so it's kind of like a doggy dog world. Sometimes you win some business, sometimes you don't, but if you diversify your, your clientele, then it can be quite healthy. Um, so we had very successful time, uh, developing products for HP and others. Simultaneously, uh, she started her own women's line in develop some really uh, price sensitive, but yet very functional and attractive women's cases. Um, so that was my career with Fabrique the first time. And then uh, my tenure ended there and I had the opportunity to kind of go back into the office channel, but more on the private side and OEM side with a company called Arista or artistic brands. Um, and the interesting thing there is even though I was still working with brands such as Staples and Office Depot and a lot of um, catalogs, I was developing a lot of products that were desk accessories and desk pads. And it's just like, okay, a lot of this product is kind of old or stale, <laughs> kind of like what's happening and how we as consumers, uh, when we're in our office or at our home office, how we work. And I just felt like a lot of this stuff was quite dated. Um, everybody uses a phone. Yep. Hello. <laughs> yeah. So really having the opportunity there really kind of take a dated category and bringing it into today's modern contemporary. So that was a lot of fun bringing in technology into your office supply. So I was actually first to market to bring in um, wireless charging desk pads and USB oriented um, desk accessories, uh, which was quite successful. And it was a fun opportunity to work for them. Um, and then the opportunity came back around to re-engage with Fabrique. So that's where I am now. So I know that we want to get into the design future panels and what you heard from Black designers. But first, you know, as a Black woman in design, what has your experience been in the world of design? Um, well, being a designer and a woman at that, and add on the fact that I'm Black, uh, has been quite interesting. Um, I was recently telling someone how in the United States, I would say it's been a little bit more challenging for people to see me than more than just a Black designer, because it's a little bit easier to go with somebody that looks like you. Um, and I think they might have been a little 
concerned on how I could possibly work with a staff who might not be fully diverse. Mm -hmm. um, so I was passed over roles when I was qualified. So, I mean, it happens, but I found companies that were interested in working with me and I really thrived and proved to be quite successful with them. Um, I would say, interesting enough, when I first started my career, when I was traveling to China, um, a lot of the Chinese people have never met a Black designer um, in one in power. So that was kind of interesting. Oh yeah, I bet to deal with a lot of the men and they would usually talk to um, the purchaser more so than me. And then 15 minutes into the meeting, they would say, well, you know, you actually have to talk to Zoe because yeah. she's going to negotiate the price and the SKUs. And it's kind of like, oh, Mm -hmm. Yes, you've just ignored me for 15 minutes. So by the way, great product, but I need a cheaper price. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Wait, let me just like jump in here. Right. Um, traveling throughout Europe and South America and even uh, Canada, I haven't really had any issues with skin color. So really kind of China in the United States. Um, and then as I've worked my way up into the director level, um, I think I've gotten a little bit of pushback because if I'm stern with someone, then it's, oh, she's being a bee, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's just like, no, not necessarily. I'm being aggressive because we have these timelines that we need to hit and I need to make sure that we're delivering on time because without design and if we don't hit these timeline goals, then everything goes off and we're going to mess up our sales anticipation. So yeah, it's right. funny. I, um, you know, so we're hiring for a couple of roles here at the museum and I've been calling references and, um, a few of the candidates are, are women and I'm like, Oh, what's their strength? And they're like, well, can I, she, she's very ambitious. Can I say that? And mm. I'm like, yes, you can definitely <laughs> say it's like a good thing. I also have received several times, oh, you're so articulate. Mm, mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, yeah. <laughs> how, am I, how else am I supposed to talk? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, would you ask that same question to a person who was not a person of color? Mm -hmm. So sometimes you get hit with these mm -hmm. double standards that, um, you know, like, ignorance, but you have to help yeah. educate people as best as possible. Um, and I think with, uh, unfortunately, the loss of George Floyd um, and Black Lives Matter, it's brought a lot of light to the situation of the way that you talk to a person and or uh, engage with them. And it's just like, oh, that's not OK. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. It's not OK to ask if you can touch my hair. No. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for sharing. I know that's um, it's great. It's important. I oh, of course. Really appreciate it. Um so the, the design future panels, I was so intrigued um, by these and um, just had some amazing folks involved. But first, like what, what prompted you to start bringing these people together and having these conversations? So Yay Ideology uh, included me in their 14th Design Summit. And that's how it kind of all really kicked off. Uh, and because of it, it was very close to George Floyd's uh, murder. And it was like, we have to talk about this a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how it kind of all began. Um, I would have to say the hardest part was looking for talent. Um, where are the black designers? I know they exist. I am one of them, but it's very difficult. Um, and to find industrial designers is even harder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like getting down, narrowing. Yep. Yeah, mm -hmm. not. I mean, there's a statistic that's out there. There's currently like I'll round it up and say forty three thousand active industrial designers in the U.S. Um, and there's only four hundred of them are 
people oh of color, which oh is crazy. Yeah, crazy. Um, and then I like to go far farther and say, well, how many of them are women? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> that totally drops down even lower. Um, but it was a great way to me to interact and meet new people. Um, so I'm very thankful for the opportunity to have been able to network and meet so many young and talented designers that are out there. So what did you what did you learn from them? What did you hear? Uh, we all have very similar stories. <laughs> <laughs> Some might have had a little bit harder roles than others in terms of uh uh, one woman, uh, Robin Reed, she had indicated how uh, being a director or manager and working with a staff of primarily all white men, um, they turned their back on her and were not interested in mm. listening to her or her leadership. And it was like, okay, that's crazy. Um, Mark Smith was quite interesting from Mark Smith Studios because he brought the international aspect of it. Um, and he was talking about his experience being in Austria and being an American from the South. And it was just like, wait, you're working for Swarovski Crystals, but you're an American and you've never been to the Europe before. So it was a very interesting experience for him and how he was received in Europe because they don't see color first. It's more so what country you're from. Um, so it's very interesting to get the different perspectives of how we've all kind of maneuvered throughout our careers. Yeah, that's so cool. And I think you, that's so cool. the broad range of folks that you've had from like different spaces and different it's just that's the kind of um amount of perspective that you really want in this space um, yeah anything that you didn't expect that uh was share because like you said you know when you and i were having our prep before this um there's just so many different experiences positive and negative that need to be shared i didn't expect the amount of feedback that I received, um, especially after doing the very first one, um, because one of the women told me at the end, wow, Zoe, you were so inspirational. If I had a woman like you as a boss in my career, I would have stayed in design. And that touched me mm. so like deeply because it's like, oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I can understand how if you see another person that looks like you or, you know, it's like, yeah, I, I can definitely stick in there. You know, I can see that I can be a manager. I could be a, a VP. So that was very inspiring to hear. And I'm going to continue to work my way up in, in as many varieties of industries as possible to inspire other upcoming young, young designers. Yeah. That representation matters, like seeing yourself in those roles. So, definitely. so important. Oh. Amazing. Thank you so much for You're sharing welcome. your experience and, and the experience of your panelists that you had. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Uh, listeners, check out Zoe's and her team's work at Fabrique. Uh, their website is fabriqueusa.org, and we'll post a link. And exciting news, Zoe will be speaking at the Sustainable Brands Conference. So cool. And that's happening August 18th and 19th. And so we'll post a link about that as well. Zoe, please stay with us. And we'll bring in our special guest, Kevin Bethune from Dreams Design and Life. If you like Design is Everywhere, you'll love our upcoming special event, Design Night Live. Join us on September 19th at 8 p.m. Eastern for Design Night Live, a Saturday night filled with design sketches, games, prizes, familiar faces, a silent auction, and more. During this interactive virtual event, attendees from all over will come together to celebrate design, community, and innovation. 
We'll be sharing the vision and impact of Design Museum Everywhere and hear from designers from around the world about the designs they can't live without. Join Design Museum on September 19th for a night filled with inspiring company, hands-on demonstrations, and incredible prizes. Tickets are just $60 and they include a year-long membership. Plus, Design Museum members attend for free. Get your tickets today at designnightlive.org. We're back and we're joined by special guest, Kevin Bethune is the founder and chief creative officer at Dreams Design and Life, a think tank delivering design and innovation services using a human-centered approach. Kevin's background spans a lot, engineering, business, and design, all in equal proportions over his um, almost more than 20 year career. Uh, this has positioned him to help brands deliver meaningful innovations and enrich people's lives and experiences. And as I said at the top, Kevin is also the chair of the Design Management Institute Board of Directors. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Ah, oh, it's our pleasure. Thank you. Uh, I, your career is amazing, right? You have this, such a cool career story across disciplines. We could do a whole episode about that. <laughs> um, you worked at Nike, you were into like a digital and like even like investment worlds. And um, we love DMI at the Design Museum. Uh, and of course you founded your firm. I'm really interested to learn, how did you discover design and get into design as a career? I, I would say I, I probably had an initial curiosity uh, for creativity in general at a young age. I drew for hobby all the time, but notions of design, I almost, as wrong as I was at, at that moment, um, I housed it under the abstraction of almost like art and then mm -hmm. it was it was sort of beyond the immediate purview of what was celebrated around me. I, mean, I grew up for the most part in the heart of big auto country of Detroit Metro and um, business and engineering were the more celebrated paths. And because my intersections uh, also crossed with math and science um, and using drawing to sort of express those ideas, uh, engineering made perhaps more pragmatic sense at the time. And so that's where I started. I, I studied mechanical engineering and um, eventually entered the nuclear profession. And while the nuclear work was incredible in terms of product experience, working with high-performing teams, working on mission-critical topics, as you can imagine, um, a natural curiosity for business arose in that. And mind you, I was still drawing for hobby on the side <laughs> as an outlet. Um, but when I, when I allowed the business curiosity to, to, to take me to business school, that was a moment to sort of step back from the career for two years and just just be open. And I even allowed the, the creative uh, appetite to flex in terms of like creating logos for student clubs in the business school environment. Oh, nice. <laughs> or helping local entrepreneurs that I know with like artwork projects for their businesses or whatever. And but I allowed that creative itch to inform the type of company that I would pursue post-graduation and and. Companies like Nike were at the top of the list because it embodied not only strategy and technology, but also had those creative faculties as well. Not knowing what I would even do with that, but that's, I was like, I'm gonna go actually try to talk to those companies first and foremost. And thankfully Nike afforded me a path in, started in a business capacity, but the Nike environment really opened my eyes to design. I bet. Hmm. Yeah, there's so much. We, we have a couple, um, we've had board members, council members at Nike, and um, it's almost like you get there and you have to get into design. It's so creative. <laughs> uh, there's so much innovation and, and creative strategy going on. It's very cool. And then can you tell us more about your current venture, Dreams, Design, and Life? 
So I guess I have to start with the previous role before that. Um, I, I am very thankful um, as I was a part of a founding team that created this incubator of sorts that landed inside of the Boston Consulting Group, the big strategy firm, right? That delivers uh, exceptional device, advice to uh, Fortune 100, Fortune 500 executives the world over. And here we were a, a, a misfit sort of crew that found each other serendipitously. And, but we all had a collective desire to just bring multidisciplinary sensibilities together as we think about innovation, pursuing growth, pursuing digital. And we started working that way just uh, as a leap of faith. And, you know, BCG ultimately gave us an, an incredible runway and really invested in us where the platform really swole over time and design represented an equal third, uh, myself being a, uh, one of the founding creative team members. And while BCG was all things to all industries and an incredible platform, I found myself watching topics that I really wanted to dig into deeper, uh, flying by a little bit too fast. And, and, and I basically said, I want to, I want to devote more calories to those topics that I'm more passionate about. And it was the right time eventually to leave the platform and start my own thing. So Dreams Design and Life, I, I sort of call it um, a two-sided coin on, on one side. We deliver strategic design to really help founders and as well as executives of large enterprises figure out like where they're going as they, as they lean into the future and future opportunities. And based on the ideas that we uncover, then the other side of the coin is the industrial design process, whether we're flushing out a device or whether we're making a digital experience or human-based service more human-centered, more systematically respectful, like allowing that industrial design process and sensibility and approach bring the best design outcome to life. I know. And you're kind of you're kind of already touching on this, right? But like a running thread throughout your career seems to be this intersection of design and business. And, you know, I understand that you're writing a, a book on the subject. And I'm just interested in how you've seen design kind of lead to business success. I think design has suffered for you know many decades an unfortunate perception of being the last step in the, any value chain, any exchange of, of collaboration. But I think over the last 10, 20 years, let's say, design thinking has been sort of the, the new sort of soundbite, the, the ethos that we feel in the corporate arena. And, you know, some of that's good, right? We, we get different departments to now look at the customer, the end user or, or whatever human beings are being served like that. We're, we're all the better when we do that and not just think about our own realities. But what my book is attempting to cover is really this notion of if you really want strategic innovation, and all the things that that includes growth, market relevance, future fitness, then you have to be a bit more deliberate with how you arrange your design and innovation capabilities. And it goes more than just the sound bites and the, the sticky note sessions in the brainstorm room. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Zoe. Um, what, why would you say, why is diversity important within the design industry? It's a heavy question. I appreciate you asking it. Um, honestly, I'll start from the challenge that we're in. For, from a design and innovation industry perspective, we're, we're sorely behind, sorely behind. And I, you know, I have personal stories I could share about like what my lived experiences have been like. But all too often, unfortunately, many companies, big and small, have sort of put 
diversity, equity, and inclusion sort of in this space, in this corner. It's almost like an extracurricular project or social impact mm. project. And I don't want to undermine like or underestimate many of the good work and good initiatives that are happening out there, but it clearly hasn't been enough. And this has to go now beyond just the touchy feel good initiative, side initiative. Um, organizations need to look at diversity, equity, and inclusion from a, almost like a systematic transformation, just as important as any other transformation that they're working on digital org, whatever it is like with recent events, especially sort of wakening up the social consciousness of not just the U S but the world. Um, it's a business necessity. It's a question of market relevance, how, how diverse and inclusive and equitable your creative teams are. And, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take the hot take here. I'll, I'll put it out there that, you know, in many, in many times in my career, when I've brushed up against design or interviewed for jobs or, you know, been evaluated, unfortunately too often than not, it's been, I've been evaluated under the guise of culture fit and very subjective success criteria and almost in many ways left in the dark without good feedback. And so my hot take is, you know, no longer can anyone, any agency, any top brand espouse themselves as a world-class design leader. When I look behind the hood and see your team and it's not representative of the audience of which you're serving, that you, you become irrelevant in my eyes. It's that, it's that simple. So from a business imperative, how are you doing to transform yourself just like you would any other transformation? Thank you for that, for that. Since George Floyd's murder and the whole Black Lives Movement, um, which brands have you noticed that have really kind of woken up <laughs> to us? Um, and if do you think they're doing a good job? I mean, in the heat of the moment, right? We we saw a lot of companies put their messages out there, right? And I and I try to believe that everyone had good intent and you know good convictions were at play. But I, I mean, I really appreciate uh, Ben and Jerry's, for example, really calling it what it is that we're dealing with probably the, the biggest terrorist threat that's plagued this nation ever since its founding, which is white supremacy and all the manifestations of it. And they called like, let's let's be clear. You look I can go to their Instagram now and see in bold white letters on black background what they're identifying. So I think we have to call things out for what it is. We have to be anti-racist. We have to be all the things. And I think with that comes an education, right? Around like how far back these systemic threads go. And, and again, strategy, bold leaps, bold investment and in where we need to go. Another company that comes to mind is Warby Parker. I think they were very, um, very transparent around like, okay, like here, here's under our hood, here's the full gamut, like up and down the spectrum. Here's the composition of how representative we are. Cause we, we acknowledge that despite the, super jarring things that we all witnessed and observed from an overt racist perspective that filled our social media. It does also make everyone think about, especially the black and brown communities, indigenous communities, it makes us think about what's happening more covertly in the places where we spend a lot of time, whether it be academia or the enterprises of which we navigate our careers. So many, uh, so many things that we have to sort of dodge, duck and weave around when it comes to you know microaggressions and the like and all these things. And they, they basically said, hey, we're not representative. We're not matching our audience. Here's, how, what, here's the metrics, here's the compositions, the percentages. Mm -hmm. and, and here's the initiatives that we're driving. And here are some like 
KPIs that you can hold us accountable to, you know, in three, six, nine, 12 months time. What would you tell your younger self on how to maneuver through your career now, knowing where you are today, right? Uh, let me first say that the path that I've been a part of, I'm, I'm despite any adversity that I may have encountered, I, I do want to acknowledge that there's been tons of mentors, advocates, sources of help, you know, from people from all backgrounds, all races, all genders, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that have helped me along the path. And I would be lying if I suggested that this multidisciplinary journey was part of, part of some master plan. And it clearly wasn't, as we discussed earlier. <laughs> but, but looking back, I can say that curiosity has been my defining thread. And if anything, when I, like, when I would talk back to my younger self, I would, I would just encourage um, younger Kevin to take even more risk and do it faster, you know, and the more we experiment against our curiosities, we, we surface evidence that helps inform like where we should go, what decisions we should make, how, how big of a commitment we should make for our life journey. And I, I can definitely recount times that I probably played it too safe or waited too long to make a move or, or try something new. Is there someone you would like to partner up with to work with or a brand that you have not yet worked with? If, if you look around my house, I have uh, a lot of audio products, headphones from every brand, speakers from every brand and walk of life. Um, I, I really dig, uh, if, I'm gonna, if I were to pick one, it would be Bang & Olufsen out of Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think the sensibilities of their form factors, the, the, the industrial design language, as well as the digital sensibilities, I, I would love to part with, partner with them to figure out how we you know, could explore um, sort of unresolved opportunities in the home or in the car or on the go, because uh, there's still tons of friction waiting to be solved with respect to how people consume music. And, you know, I, I, for me personally, music is, is a driving vehicle. Like I don't just treat it as a side thing that is only for enjoyment. It, it moves people, it, you know, opens people up, it calms you down. It, there's so many purposes that music plays in our lives that I think we take for granted. Mm-hmm. And I, and almost I, I, I finally remember growing up, you know, my dad had um, um, a really impressive <laughs> stereo from General Electric, like crazy industrial design, swoopy lines, fiberglass, you know, aluminum, all, all these things. <laughs> and it was ritual, like to listen to records on that thing. It, it was ritual. And, you know, you see the little meters going back and forth and the lights and it, it was a ritual to listen to music. And I think we've lost that. And I would love to partner with a brand like Vingana Lufsen to, to bring that back to life again. What advice would you tell a recruiter or, or an, an employer that um, why diversifying their staff is key and to continue to search outside of their network to find the talent and give you know people of color and black people an opportunity where they're not used to having them? What, I think my first reaction is you're just not talking to a huge part of the world mm-hmm. when, when your teams aren't necessarily mirroring the world. And when it comes to like hiring or finding talent, you know, the old adage is, oh, you know, it's hard to find talent. They don't exist. There's not enough black designers. Albeit the the population, <laughs> yeah, see, the two of us are right here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, we, we are out there, you know, there you're talking to a, a demographic that especially nowadays is heavily educated. We've had mm-hmm. to heavily educate ourselves to survive. 
And I think in many ways, when I look at, again, I, my mind goes to the top agencies that espouse the virtues of design and espouse how world-class they are and the top brands and the in-house teams. And again, like the composition is just depressing when I, when I go to talk to those organizations with maybe some level of excitement of, 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 of collaborating and being part of that new story. But if I just feel like I'm going to have a hard time spending so much energy making everyone else feel comfortable for me to even just belong, mm. we know enough. All right, you know, we know enough nowadays with what we see on social media. I can peek behind the hood of any company, follow the Twitter of their employees, and understand what the culture is. Like mm-hmm. within a, within a day, I can get a good sense. So, I, I guess to get, to get to your question. There are folks that are out there. And if you just fall to the old patterns of hiring against culture fits, which is full of biases and ignorant sort of notions and subjective success criteria, if you just hired a comfort fit, you're losing. And if you want to intercept talent that represents ultimately the audience you're serving, um, you gotta, you gotta put in the work, you gotta invest, you gotta, you gotta put in the relationships because I'm, you know, my phone's ringing all the time from companies wanting to find black talent and depending on like who I know in those relationships, I will either help or I just won't return the call because they haven't demonstrated any investment or, you know, I, I've maybe brushed up against that brand and had a lived experience where, you know, I was clearly excluded and it's not about holding resentment, but I just remember I remember, yeah. or I remember you burning one of my friends who t- shared with me an anecdote about how your brand behaves. So we're hyper-connected and there's no running from the truth. So true. What advice would you give to a non, either a non-Black person or a person of color who says, I don't understand, but I'm trying to understand? I, on one hand, you appreciate them asking, right? Versus mm-hmm. like just swallowing it and, and being... Um, color shy. I mean, there's a TED talk from Melody Hobson that talks about being color brave. I mean, we do have to lean into these conversations. So I respect someone from, for asking the question. I, I, I would say, you know, they have to just understand if they're talking to a, a, a black um, person that's wrestling with a lot of these emotions right now, um, that you, you have to be super respectful because you, do, you don't want to add burden to the plate to help you get educated, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. there's tons of resources, you know, get educated. I mean, there's been uh, amazing works. Like a friend of mine that I went to undergrad with is Nicole Hannah-Jones. Uh, she she basically, her vision uh, brought forth the 1619 Project from the New York Times. Oh, so powerful. Right? Yep. Um, and also making the case for reparations recently and, and, and the like. I mean, there's so many resources. There's books. There's just amazing works out there that you can get educated on. Just appreciating, even though we're not expecting you to become a history scholar overnight, <laughs> but to appreciate how hardwired our institutions are today mm-hmm. from the ill effects of chattel slavery from this nation's founding and how, mm-hmm. that, how that permeates not just the U.S., but the world in terms of these, these institutional paradigms that we now, we need to question, we need to dismantle, we need to improve for the better. You're both amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you both for that, for sharing your perspectives again. And actually I'll share, I know I've shared it a couple of times on the podcast, but right on our front page, um, our director of 
uh, learning and interpretation. Diana Navarrete Rakakis has been pulling uh, anti-racism um, resources. And so that's that list is always growing. So listeners, if you need books, podcasts, videos, like do the work, um, and maybe that's a place where you can start. So thank you, Kevin, for joining us. This has been a real pleasure. Oh, thank you for having me again. And thank you, Zoe. <laughs> You're welcome. Listeners, check out Kevin's work at Dreams Design and Life, where he focuses on strategic design, industrial design, and new ecologies. Visit dreamsdesignandlife.com. Now it's time for our weekly dose of good design, where we each share an example of good design that has impacted us or others in some meaningful way. I will start us off this week. Okay, my weekly dose uh, comes from the Oregonian, the newspaper, and it comes from Bend, Oregon, where you can find the only still standing blockbuster video store. So for our young listeners, <laughs> I feel like I have to explain. <laughs> blockbuster was a store where you could physically go and browse movies on VHS and DVD and rent them for a couple nights to bring them home. Then you had to bring them back <laughs> and you had to rewind as well. Let's not forget the rewind. Um, of course, with the advent of digital video and streaming, Blockbuster is no more. Uh, but somehow this single store survives. Uh, so recently, this particular Blockbuster store partnered with Airbnb to offer COVID safe sleepovers in the store. So up to a, house, uh, a household of up to four people can spend the night at Blockbuster and have free reign of the store's entire movie collection, plus pizza, Pepsi, popcorn uh, for a movie marathon. And I love the cost. Uh, the cost is $3.99, which was the price of <laughs> renting a movie back in the day. Uh, so as part of this, uh, Airbnb will make a donation to the Humane Society of Central Oregon, uh, because that Blockbuster store has a relationship with that nonprofit and has been supporting them for a long time. So I love that connection. I love movies, and I think this would be a lot of fun. Uh, so you could check it out at airbnb.com slash Blockbuster. And like, I'm immediately yeah. back to my childhood and how I would just peruse oh, yeah. the kids section mm -hmm. as my mom was picking mm -hmm. out her movie. And like, maybe, maybe. I could convince her. Yep. I'm shocked at the $3.99. Oh, so I know. I mean, that's cheaper than going to the movie theater right now. <laughs> All right. So Liz, you're next. All right. Yeah. So, okay. So my son is really into these like STEM building toys, which are basically like connector mm -hmm. sets. Right. And so, you know, with these, they can build and design almost anything very quickly. Right. He comes up with things like airplanes and machines and, and all sorts of really cool stuff. Um, and I recently discovered uh, tube locks. Mm. I think that's how it's pronounced, which is like the giant version of the exact same toy. Uh, so kids can not only make houses and airplanes and lemonade stands and jungle gyms, uh, but then they can actually use them, right? They're full size, they're fully functional. Um, and these sets, you know, they come with wheels so they can make cars and bicycles and whatever they can dream up. And, you know, just to visualize this for anyone who's listening, it's like, giant tubes and then they link together um and i just love these toys because it's just a great way to get you know kiddos thinking about problem solving and inventing as they play i just think it's such a wonderful way um for them to spend their time and and i'm not gonna lie during this pandemic my husband and i are really trying to be like minimalistic <laughs> um but i think these might need to be like a special joint present to both of our kiddos this christmas because 
I just oh, yeah. want them too. They awesome. just look awesome. It reminds me of a toy I had when I was a kid. It was called Pipeworks. And it was like, like you said, pipes. Oh. And then there was like different connectors, like three-way, four-way, you know, little bends and um, hinges yeah. and wheels. But they're yeah, like full, full size. size. So you would make right? like, like a, yeah, I would make like a car. I would make like a, a house, like you said. Yeah. There's something about the scale. Yes, please. Um, that's so key for kids, right? That's so cool. Because everything else right? they have is so little. Yeah. It's like, and then they get, they're like, I built this. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And a three foot tall house to oh, them yeah. is like they built the whole house. house. That's incredible. 100%. Yeah, totally. They're in a car and the car's like no. three feet. <laughs> All right, Zoe, wrap us up here. What's your weekly dose of good design? So mine's actually more brand focused. I came across an article um, through Business Insider and it was talking about coach. And of course, with COVID, it's making huge impacts on so many brands and retailers across the world. Um, and I thought coach was taking an interesting approach by cutting back the number of SKUs that they're going to be putting out for handbags, accessories, and articles of clothing um, this coming holiday. It made me think, smart, okay, not everybody needs 30 handbags each right. season. Like, we only have one arm to you know, carry them on. Um, and so I'm thinking, is this the beginning of, you know, COVID is not good, but is this also a way that is shaping the way we as design and brands go forward and develop product? We no longer need to have everything up here, right? At the wider aspect of the funnel, but really going in at the narrow aspect of the funnel to focus in on a tighter, more lean line of product. Um, and so I thought that was quite interesting. Um, and I hope this kind of continues in a positive way yeah, um, yeah. and not necessarily in the negative aspect. Yeah, that's awesome. Very cool. Thank you both. Those, I mean, that's just the breath of design. I love it. And thank you, Zoe. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. And that's our show. Thank you all for listening. And big thanks to Zoe Middleton and Kevin Bethune for joining us and sharing their perspectives. Uh, as always, we'll post links to some of the stuff we discussed today on our episode page. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. And make sure to get your Design Night Live tickets this week. All attendees uh, are entered to win incredible prizes and not only get to experience impactful design, but also get to meet designers from across the country and the world. So just go to designnightlive.org. I can't believe like it's coming up. It's like a week away. Oh my gosh. Yeah, we'd really love to see you all there. So there's still time to get tickets. Make sure to grab them and be sure to say hi on social media. Uh, we're on Twitter at design underscore museum and on Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. And we're on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. Yes. And thank you to all of our podcast subscribers. We love you and we love sharing these conversations with you every Thursday morning. Uh, if you just started listening, be sure to subscribe so that Design is Everywhere is in your feed each week. Uh, and you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. That's right. This episode was written by me, Sam Aquilano. We're produced by Ryan Flaunt. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For Liz Pollock and the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thank you, and we'll talk again next week. Bye, everyone.